today on EdgeFX. Every few years, there'll be battle lines drawn and there'll be the wilderness defenders and those who would argue that there is no wilderness or wildness. Really, these are just constructs. And we wanted to completely avoid that. We wanted to tell stories about people in their places. As human beings, we are compelled by story. Landscape historian Dagan Miller speaks with Gavin Van Horn and Kurt Miney two of the writers responsible for the important new essay collection, Wildness, Relations of People and Place. They discuss how even in a world dominated by humans, forces of nature are everywhere at work and the big and little revolutions that makes possible. So, yeah, I'm very excited and honored to be with Gavin Van Horn. Gavin is the editor, along with John Hausdorfer, of a new book called Wildness, Relations of People in Place. It's freshly out from the University of Chicago Press. Gavin is the director of the Cultures of Conservation at the Center for Humans and Nature, also in Chicago. He's also the co-editor of City Creatures, Animal Encounters in the Chicago Wilderness, also with Chicago, and a forthcoming work of creative nonfiction that I hope we'll talk about in a little bit called The Channel Coyotes, Other Worlds of the Urban Wild. Gavin, welcome to the EdgeFX podcast. Thank you for having me, Dagan. I, I want to begin with a, a bit of an admission. I wish I could say that, you know, I was diligently doing my scholarship and, and found you through that way. But actually, the way I became aware of you was through Twitter, and when about a year ago, you were posting pictures of Kayak to Work Day. And I saw these amazing photos of what looked kind of like a wilderness river with green herons and all sorts of things like that. And it turned out to be, I, th I think, the Chicago River. And then you sort of posted these selfies, too, of you arriving at work in Chicago, you know, in your kayak with a shirt and tie on. And, you know, it, it seemed it seemed like the sort of thing that, are you know, totally incongruous, really wonderful, really interesting. And then I read Wildness and it all kind of made sense to me. So I wonder if, you know, with a sort of anecdote of, of kayak to work, how did you come to edit this book and why why this book? So the kayak to work day was kind of a lark. It was, it was a fun way of drawing attention to these different corridors we have throughout the city, not just the greenways, but the blueways as well. And I had purchased an inflatable kayak and started to explore the city as my way of getting to know this place better. It's geography, it's non-human creatures. And the great thing about waterways is they concentrate life. And the Chicago River has been much abused in the past, but it's on the mend. And so while it's still probably not the best idea to jump in the water, you can float on it. And certainly other species have re-inhabited that waterway. And you mentioned green herons, you know, there's sort of the heron trifecta, the great blue herons, the black crowned night herons, the green herons. But then there are beavers. And just uh, a month ago or two weeks ago, I was on the water and I saw a mink for the first time. Oh, yeah. Um, so even rare animals that have been extirpated from this area are coming back. And so the biodiversity of those areas is increasing. And I like the juxtaposition of people being only a few feet away or 10 or 20 feet away on walking paths or even on the road or on a highway because I pass under highways on as I kayak that area. 
And they have no idea, really, that that concentration of life and all of that energy is down there. And so hopefully, to sort of segue into your question about wildness, Mm -hmm. uh, the book itself, part of my reason in wanting to put this together was to draw attention to that. And for me, now living in an urban area, to draw attention and hopefully open some eyes to the fact that our urban areas are also ecologies. They're Hmm. also multi-species communities and they're full of of wildness one end of sort of the continuum of wildness but nevertheless they can be very special places in both connecting us to a larger community of life and transporting us to other places that are connected along that continuum yeah so so this actually really gets to one of the things that i think is is really wonderful and surprising about the book and you know surprising in sort of a wonderful way it's broken up into four parts, right? The first part is called Wisdom of the Wild. Part Mm -hmm. two is the Working Wild. Part three is the Urban Wild, uh, which you just gave us sort of a a taste of, I think. And part four is the Planetary Wild. One of the things that I think really distinguishes the book is that there's not a lot, you know, some of the people write about traditional wilderness, and and we'll talk about that a little bit. But Mm -hmm. most of these essays are about cities or farm fields or places that are inhabited by people. And you just mentioned this notion that comes up throughout the book, the continuum of wildness. What do you mean by that? What is the continuum of wildness? Yeah, so I'm trying to think of the origins of where I first sort of stumbled into that. And interestingly enough, because Kurt will be joining later, it might have been because of Kurt. Mm -hmm. Because Kurt was using that language. And I remember before I had the job at the Center for Humans and Nature, I met Kurt at, surprise, surprise, an Aldo Leopold seminar. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) And he had this PowerPoint slide, which I think he still uses sometimes. And it shows these different landscapes from a big city with skyscrapers out into the the hinterlands, you know, of a remote mountain kind of holdfast. And in between are the suburbs, the exurbs, rural lands, ranching lands. And so it sort of follows, you know, from density, human density to a lack of that. And he sort of says, this is the landscape continuum And the thing about this continuum and the reason for calling it that is because all of these things are connected. The country creates the city. The city creates the country. Also an argument that William Cronin, incidentally, made much of in his Nature's Metropolis Mm -hmm. book. So these things are intertwined. And though we might think or might be tempted to think of urban areas because of the kind of environmental narrative that arose in this country in the 60s and 70s, we might be tempted to think of urban areas as sort of devoid of life or devoid of wildness or devoid of meaningful experience in the natural world, that nature doesn't stop at the city limit signs. It is, as I said before, threaded throughout our densest urban environments. And so that continuum is something that we wanted to present in the book that sort of lay it out, these different stories across the landscape of where people are connecting to these larger natural forces, shorthand of which might be wildness. Mm, yeah, I, I, I like there's a lot in there that I want to sort of pick up on. But before we get to some of the meteor, you mentioned, you know, that you work for the Center for Humans in Nature. Can you just tell us all a little bit about what you do there and about what the Center for Humans and Nature is and does? Yeah, sure. It's sort of a unique entity. So it's, it's hard to give people an easy box to put it in. Our tagline is expanding the civic and moral imagination. And We're founded by a philosopher 
who was interested in how human beings connect to the larger community of life. So we focus a lot on beliefs, values, ethics, and how those intersect with views of the natural world, actions in the natural mm. world, beliefs about the natural world. So we ask really big questions and we try to generate a conversation with those who come to our website. And my role in that is I often cook up projects that I think will be entry points for people to consider our relationships mm. with other species, uh, with the natural world in general. And so how can we begin to think of ourselves as interdependent, as connected to a larger community of life? How do we deepen our relationships with place? Mm -hmm. What are some of those gateways for people? And so that's, you know, some of the things that the, the books that you've mentioned are done or taken up in that in that spirit. And it seems like it's not just sort of intellectual work you're doing, right? Like, I feel like I've seen you lead a lot of walking tours or like walking and talking tours and things like this. Is that is that right? Is that part yeah. of what you're doing? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Well, a friend of mine, a colleague at DePaul, an ecologist whose name is Liam Heenahan and I, we're both walking is a practice for us that has become an important way to deepen our understanding and awareness of place. I mean, this is a, in some ways a very time honored in both natural history circles and um, as a contemplative practice, etc. So we walk a lot together. And when you slow down your pace, when you go at a certain rhythm, there's a lot more opportunity to see things, hear things, smell things that you wouldn't have before. And so we wanted to emphasize or bring that, open that up to a larger group. So we started a meetup group that meets in Chicago once every month or two and goes on an urban nature hike. Sometimes we have people guiding us along the way, pointing out particular things, maybe restoration sites and things like that. Sometimes it's just the walking and getting to know a part of Chicago that one wouldn't otherwise have just said, I'm going to go here and try this. You know, if you have a group of people, it can make people feel comfortable and going mm, to a right. new place they're unfamiliar with and, and really seeing a new part of the city. And there's tons to explore. When I was teaching, one of the favorite classes I had is I had, I had one class where for one lecture, we went on a walk to talk about talk about the, the day's reading. And it was, you know, like, and it was weird for the first couple of minutes, the kids were sort of like, why are we outside? Why are we walking along? But then I think you're exactly right. You know, something about the contemplative place something about instead of being seated in a classroom, you know, with a fluorescent lights overhead, it sort of opened things up and the conversation was very, very different. You know, it was um, more ruminative in some ways. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, I think it wandered exactly, a little bit more, but in a nice way. Right. Appropriate well. for the yeah. walking and the wandering. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I taught for a few years, college uh, at, at university, and, and um, I also did that with students. And you're right. You know, we think everything, we get a little head heavy, you know, a little too neck up, especially in academics. And the body is a mnemonic device in some way. If we take in the world and if we take it in through our physical, sensual presence were, at least in my view, were more likely to remember those experiences and connect the pieces together between maybe what we're reading and what we're seeing and, and mm. the sensations, the physical sensations create ways that, that sort of lock those things in, in a way that is difficult to replicate when we're just trying to sort of absorb a ton of material in a classroom.
Mm, yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Continuing on the on the same theme, but I want to ask a question that that takes it maybe a little bit of a different direction. There are a lot of things that I think are really extraordinary about this book. Uh, one of them is the literary quality to many of the essays. Thank you. And it's it's striking right from the get go, right from the introduction. It's clear that this is something that's a little bit different than what one often finds published by a university press. Even a press, and uh, my own book's coming out with Chicago, so I think I'm contract bound to say, even a press <laughs> as good as Chicago, which is the best press in the entire universe. Um, <laughs> but there's a real literary quality. The, I should clarify, you wrote the introduction, and then you've got an essay about halfway through in the urban wild part. And I wonder if I can have you read just a little blurb from the urban wild. Are you, are you okay with that? Yeah, I'm fine with that. There's the nature we discover and the nature we recover. There is wildness and there's wildness. And sometimes our own wholeness depends on the nature we attempt to make whole. So one of the things that I that I really love about, especially the way you've you know you've written your parts, um, and this comes, uh, I think this is related to the walking discussion we were just having, is that there's a real pace and rhythm to your sentences, right? Um, you say there is the nature we discover and the nature we recover. You know, there's some rhyming, there's some slant rhyme. There's you're you're playing with sounds in all sorts of interesting ways. You're playing with pacing in all sorts of interesting ways. And those three sentences, I think, are also quite mysterious, right? <laughs> it, it's not the typical academic monographic, you know, in this article, I am going to argue X, Y, Z. And that's not to, you know, denigrate this more sort of academic or monographic. It's just to, to highlight that, that you're more in an essayistic mode. Yeah, that's right. And these three sentences are really, really mysterious, but they also make sense in the context of your essay on the urban wild, healing the urban wild. What, what do these three sentences mean? How do they set up the essay? What are you doing with them? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's kind of fun to hear it reflected back to me from someone else. And it is a bit of a koan, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, but you notice, I mean, the very next sentence, I say, I need to explain. Right. <laughs> you know? right. right. So I know that I can only take the reader so far down that path before I have to, you know, say, okay, okay, you know, here's the deal. Just to unpack them a little bit. There's the nature we discover and the nature we recover. Like, so this essay is about ecological restoration. That's the hands-on intensive process of trying to put an ecological system back on some kind of trajectory that mirrors or, or, or parallels some moment before it was degraded in, in some way. So the nature we discover, I, I think of in terms of stumbling upon or being awed by some instance of natural beauty. But then there's the nature we recover. And that indicates that human presence and human participation is involved in that, which is maybe not a thought that people always have. I think people sometimes tend to think in dichotomous terms. There's nature and slash there's human. Right. Um, so a big point of this book, uh, one of the major themes of this book, is that humans can be co-creators. They can be participants in wildness. They uh, actually can enhance the systems of which they're a part. That's putting a little bit too mechanically. They can actually deepen their relationship 
to place. And in doing so, the qualities of that place can be expressed more fully. Its wildness or self-will or autonomy can be more fully expressed. So that's the nature we recover. We recover uh, both in our physical spaces, but there's also a hint of we can recover that within, within ourselves Mm -hmm. as individuals. There's a kind of wildness within that we can attend to as well. And then the, the idea that there is wildness and there is wildness is a setup for the essay right. as, as a whole in that there is a kind of – wildness can mean different things to different people um, and has historically. Yeah, and can you actually explain that a little bit? Because this is something I want to push on more. Sure. We didn't shy away in this book from the fact that wildness is not always uh, a beneficent term depending on – where you are positioned culturally in particular. And, and so wildness can mean a lot of things. I mean, we hear it, let's just, you know, take common usages in our culture, like, wow, that is wild, you know, okay, so it can mean something really crazy or really cool. Or in Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side, it can mean heroin addiction and prostitution and, you know, the wild parts of the city right. that are thought of as chaotic and and disorderly and out of control. Now, in conservation circles, wildness is often, I think, presumed to simply be almost a wholly positive thing. Um, So we challenged that somewhat, pushed back on it a little bit while holding and acknowledged that there were diverse sort of meanings, uh, as there are for any word in our language. But nevertheless, wildness captured something that, that we really wanted to explore and emphasize as a, as a possible kind of bridge concept between things. So the, that sentence, there is wildness and there is wildness. Well, there is this wildness that we often think of as a kind of holistic, biodiverse, aesthetically pleasing, perhaps, concept. And then there is wildness, which is the, the things that I mentioned before, things that are chaotic or things that are actually damaging. And so I'm playing with those dual meanings there. And I explore that in the essay because, of course, some of the people in the essay who are from West and South Chicago, first thing that came to mind wasn't a positive thing. Right, right. And then how about the last sentence there? And sometimes our own wholeness depends on that nature we attempt to make whole. Yeah, so that's really the crux of this essay. and, And in some ways, a major theme in the book as well, at least for me. One of the people I interviewed in this chapter, a man named Henry, says that human beings are in the process of becoming, and we have a lot of input, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, into what we become. Mm -hmm. And to me, that wholeness that many of us are seeking, whether we know it or not, where we feel our own incompleteness, we feel our own lack, and we're searching for those connections that make us feel a part of something larger than ourselves. Mm. Uh, so that wholeness, that sort of natural wholeness, or that what Gary Snyder calls the assembly of all beings, mm-hmm. right? that wholeness depends on the nature we attempt to make whole is my way of saying that when we're, when we're working on the landscape, when we're either doing ecological restoration or some sort of practice that places us in direct contact with and direct relationship with the landscape, when we perform acts of healing upon the land, whatever particular practice or, or form those may take, we sort of recover a part of ourselves. We understand a bit more. We sort of open, crack the door slightly further 
into our own sense of what it means or what it could mean to be whole. Yeah, and I like the position of your essay in the book, right, where sort of right in the middle. And in some ways, it seems like your essay highlights a lot of the themes that the book is sort of circling around, right? One of them is this notion that wildness is not just traditional, untouched, untrammeled by man wilderness, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But another one is is this idea of health and a sort of mutually interdependent health, that you can't have a healthy population without healthy landscapes, and you can't have healthy landscapes without healthy people, a healthy economy, a healthy, you know, government, et cetera, et cetera. Who, who is this Henry guy? I mean, the way that you described him when I just asked you, it sounds a little bit like he's kind of like a John Muir, you know, Gnostic <laughs> philosopher with a long white flowing beard on top of a mountain, uh-huh. but he's not, right? Who, who, who is he? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I wonder if he'd, yeah, that'd be fun to hear his reaction to that. So Henry is, uh, he's a crew supervisor leader or was for Green Corps Chicago, which is a organization that the city contracts to do landscaping and restoration work uh, around the city. And the unique thing about Green Corps is about 90% of the people that work for Green Corps or go through their job training processes are um, ex-offenders. So they've been in, they've been in prison, um, some of them for long stints of time. So this is in part an effort to uh, in, where people face a lot of barriers coming out of incarceration in terms of the job market and people that will hire them. This gives them skill building uh, and working on a resume and gaining various job skills that, they're, that they'll need. And so Henry you know, entered into the Green Corps program and eventually became a crew supervisor. Mm. And he's kind of known as the chainsaw guy because he... <laughs> knows which trees are diseased and need to come down, which trees are invasive. And and, and he uh, is a pretty remarkable fellow. So African-American, grew up on the west side of Chicago. And he does have, a, I mean, you, may, you know, he does, there is a kind of uh, sort of contemplative aspect to him. I don't know that that'd become clear, you know, after first meeting him, but you get in a conversation with him and you know, he's thinking deeply about these things. He's thinking about, you know, the human relationship to yeah. to place. And so he was a he was a great person to talk to to articulate some of the important things about what Green Corps means in the context of an urban environment. Yeah, and that very much comes through in your essay. The sort of eloquence and deep philosophical grounding, but that's not coming out of like university training, right? That's coming out of having been behind bars for some amount of time and really working in the community with community members, but also really working in um, sort of woody areas of of Chicago. And and then it gets back to this notion for me of recovery and health. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just recovery of the land. It's sort of, you know, we can think about kind of like medical recovery or um, spiritual recovery or something like that. Right. Um, these themes really seem to to string their way through the majority of the essays, I think. You know, one of the other things that really, I think, sets this book apart from many of the other sorts of books that we can think of on on sort of wilderness and wildness is that there's a tremendous diversity. You've got Nistinget Smith has a wonderful essay on the African-American notion of the wild and wilderness. You've got a number of uh, people who, you know, are sort of hailing from American Indian backgrounds, from Mexican-American backgrounds. Uh, Vandana Shiva is a contributor. 
one of my favorite essays, Devin G. Pena, is coming at it with sort of uh, a native slash Marxist slash kind of anarchist sensibility. Yeah. So there's a tremendous diversity. There's also a tension in the book, and I think a, a really productive tension around this notion of what is wildness. And I, I haven't asked you that question point blank yet. I think you've given us a lot of I, uh, ideas of what wildness could be. Um, I want to ask you that question, what is wildness? And I want to make sure to bracket that I'm interested in your response, both as one of the editors of this you know, very, very diverse collection, uh, but also as an author who has, you have an argument, a fairly strong argument about what wildness is. But how can you balance all these things? Right. Well, um, okay. So the, and, and I know you said that we'd probably get a little bit into the difference between wildness and wilderness mm-hmm, later, yeah. but at least that provides a, a, an easy place in some ways to start. And a simple way of saying this might be, while wilderness is a place, wildness is a process. Mm-hmm. You can think of wildness as, I mean, it's usually associated with, with self-will, you know, with the etymological roots of the term wildness. But that only gets us so far, I think, because as as an individual, before I put my editor's hat on, mm-hmm. one thing that was important and one thing that I sort of learned and were, was clarified in the process of, of putting this book together was that wildness, to me, sort of its fullest expression. Um, I use a real, maybe it's a silly example, maybe not. But, um, you know, I say, okay, there's an individual acorn and that's a wild thing, right? Mm-hmm. And the potential for wildness in that seed is great. And people think of an individual acorn and they might think of it as growing into an individual oak tree. But, mm-hmm. the, but an individual oak tree needs the processes of the community in order to achieve its oakiness. Right, <laughs> right, right. So it needs sunlight and water and soil microbes and uh, possibly fire to open up and and to thrive um, within a larger system. So an individual doesn't find full expression unless the community, you mentioned this before, kind of health of community, health of, health of the natural areas going hand in hand. So wildness as process is a, is a sort of fundamental life force that flows through right all things, that can occur across any landscape type. So that's geographically, that can cover a lot of ground. But the other thing that I think is important to emphasize is a kind of depth in place. And for that, I wanted to introduce that understanding of wildness as, as kinship, as, mm. as a, a relational quality, that we are connected deeply from from the the microbes in our bodies to uh to atmospheric levels but we are kin with other things so one of the essayists in the book enrique salmon Mm. is a terra humara indian from northern mexico now teaches in in california he's an ethnobotanist but one of the terms he uses to describe his people's understanding of the plants they have relationship to Mm -hmm. is a concentric landscape Right, that he right. lives in a world of kin, that other beings have agency, they have subjectivity, they're incorporated into the stories and myths of the culture, they're understood as having kind of mirror relationships with certain human phases of life, 
But the point here is that he lives in a world of kin and so of relatives. And so that also is included in, in that wildness term for me. Yeah. And, and this this actually I'm just going to jump in because I want to hear the editor hat, too. But uh, this is where you use the acorn anecdote, I think, on page three. Right. Like right in the beginning. And this is where I was sold on the book, because, you know, one of the one of the really thorny problems in, you know, culture and political philosophy and any of these sorts of things is the relationship of the individual to some sort of society, some sort of larger society. Mm. Right. Um, and especially, you know, one of one of my interests slash hobby horses is is sort of green lefty anarchism. And one of, you know, this notion of self-will, it's easy to knock down, you know, the, the, the idea of the lone individual who's not tied to anyone else. But there's a way that you saw that solve is probably a little bit too strong a word, but but what the hell? We'll say there's a way that you solve it, right? That the individual needs a community for the individual's sort of fullest self-expression, which has to do with health. I mean, I think this health angle is 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 really an important one that threads its way through. Mm-hmm. But not all of your contributors have this view of wildness, right? Right. There's there's a, a fair bit of critique of you know Enrique Salmon, for, for instance, says that there's no word in his language for wildness or wilderness or environment, mm-hmm. right? That, that those things, they're not real, right? There's some really wonderful positioning going on in this, in this book, the way the essays were laid out, because they very much speak to each other and sometimes argue with each other, right? Mm-hmm. How as an editor, did you balance these different versions of wildness? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Number one, we wanted to, you mentioned the diversity in the book, and we wanted to be inclusive of different perspectives and not just include a sort of monolithic, like, this is what wildness is, you know, get on board or, <laughs> or don't, you know, or don't, or don't bother. Um, you know, th- there is a, a sort of expansiveness to this term. And I mean, you'll notice that Enrique's essay comes very early in the book, and that was intentional right. as well. So here's a kind of an immediate challenge. This has been a colonial tool to right. subject and oppress other peoples or to justify their conquest and the taking away of their traditional lands. And it has been a word that has been used in an abusive way. Enrique speaks to that and he speaks to and reacts to that. And yet he sort of holds out a kind of tentative or cautious, I wouldn't call it a hope, but maybe an acknowledgement that our language is constantly changing. And if there can be, you know, if it can can sort of uh, hold these different meanings, then perhaps there's a future for that term that might make sense, you know, that might yeah. be okay. There, there's a real generosity, I think, to the book and to, and to many of the contributors in the book, you know, who, some of whom have fairly strong arguments, but I don't think that there's a polemic in the book. There's not a piece that's a screed or a polemic, you know, mm. advocating for one and only one view of wildness, at, le- at least on my read, read of the book. Well, I'm glad you feel that way because that was important to us. Uh, you know, a, a lot of times, um, you know, there have been the great quote unquote wilderness debates, and it seems like it's, right. it surfaces every few years or so. There'll be kind of battle lines drawn, and there'll be the sort of wilderness defenders. Right. Who want to rally the, the troops. Um, and I don't say that in a pejorative way. You know, there, there are major things at stake in terms of public lands. 
Um, and then on the other side of that, there's sort of those who would uh, sort of argue the opposite, that there is no nature, really. I mean, there is no wilderness or wildness, really. These are just constructs. And I know I'm sort of caricaturing here, but but these are the kinds of, of discussions that sometimes happen around these terms. And we wanted to completely, if we could, avoid that. Not that those aren't important discussions, but what I see happening in those sorts of debates and discussions oftentimes are two sides volleying at one another without ever really intending to understand or right. or find a kind of common frame of reference to, to move forward with. Right. And often they're sort of high-level debates. They're kind of uh, they might be passionate, but they're oftentimes somewhat abstract. And so we wanted to do something different with this. We wanted to tell stories about people in their places, and we wanted to invite readers into those stories and into a kind of empathy for what these various authors are, are relating, are narrating. And I think that has to do with a perspective, at least I'll speak for myself, that you know, as human beings, we are compelled by story. Yes. And we not only tell these stories, we dwell within them, whether we know it or not. And and that by learning and understanding and, and getting to know other people's stories, our own perspective can be substantially expanded. Our own sort of presuppositions can be disarmed or deconstructed. And we can learn what it means for other people to live in their places in a way that encourages the overall health, not just of the human community, but of the human community within the ecological communities that they're a part of. Yeah. And, and that's, that comes through very strongly, you know, as, uh, you know, I was making notes to myself as I was reading, you've got in, in terms of the aesthetics sort of on display, you've got a bunch of poetry. Um, it starts off actually with poetry, right? With Gary Snyder. Um, you've got a lot of creative nonfiction, um, you've got some more sort of traditional journalism. Um, it ends with uh, this this really <laughs> this really thought provoking um, interview between uh, your co editor John Hausdorfer and Roderick Fraser Nash. Uh, they're sort of conducting this interview at a ski resort, right? Right. Um, or or about, or in between ski trips during ski trips, right? And Roderick Fraser Nash is making the case for his island civilization, and Hausdorfer is 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 pushing actually quite hard in many places and they they eventually find something in common to to sort of hold on to but a lot of what seems to be driving the book at least formally is some the the only aesthetic that I didn't see the only the only form that I didn't really see was the academic article and I wonder if you know this might be a little bit of a shot in the dark but i wonder if there's a connection between the sort of wildness the sort of the the self-willedness a lot of your writers a lot of the people in the book talk about wildness as as that which is sort of unknown to some degree by humans uncontrollable mm. um if there's a connection between the aesthetics of the book and you know some notion of wild yeah i mean i think those are really interesting observations and and it's true that we certainly we didn't want to create an academic textbook about wildness. I mean, that wasn't of interest to us. So telling, you know, storytelling and encouraging our authors to further elaborate on those sort of personal moments or those emotionally compelling moments of what, you know, wildness means to them was important to us. And you're right, there are a diversity of 
of approaches and that does kind of reflect a kind of hopefully a sort of wrangled you know uh, out of controlness but maybe there is a kind of just beyond the fringes an encouragement you know to readers to think about what their instances of wildness are Mm -hmm. well John Hausdorfer, the co-editor, really wrestles with this, not in his essay uh, with Roderick Fraser Nash, which has its own sort of really interesting dimensions to it. But when he visits, he visits the White Earth Reservation in Minnesota for their wild ricing ceremony. And as a white guy coming into, you know, an Anishinaabe context, he recognizes that they have that rice is essential to the continuance of their culture not just for feeding people, like culturally, right. like it matters and it is defining in some ways. And so he asks himself, what is my rice? Right. And for John, at least where he has landed is, uh, uh, you know, because of his perspective from Colorado, the snowpack on the mountains that feeds all of the, that's basically the lifeblood of his valley that forms, you know, the melting spring water. His rice is ice. <laughs> right. So, right. so that's that's his sort of self discovery or exploration. Like his protecting that is protecting the wildness of his place. His encouraging that and and thinking about climate change and thinking about the health of his community is thinking about the ice of of where he lives. And I think that for each of us, we would do well to think about sort of what our rice is or what our ice is yeah. in our place. Like, right. what what is that which is defining of the ecology uh, and the natural uh, uh, and the human communities in concert with one another, what keeps those things together and helps those things flourish over the long haul. So I know Julianne Lutz Warren from, we had an Anthropocene slam here at UW-Madison two years ago, two and a half years ago. And Julianne read this just, unbelievable piece um, about the uh, about a New Zealand bird, I think it was a New Zealand bird, called the huia that's this extinct, um, and about a, a, a native New Zealander who could whistle like the huia, and it's this extraordinarily complicated yeah. bird song. You, you wouldn't think that a human could mimic it, but this guy could, and before he died, uh, a vinyl recording you know, I don't know, in the 30s or something, was made of him whistling. And that's the only way we know mm. what the huia sounds like. And then I've, I've uh, been at a couple of other things with Julianne over the last couple of years. Everything she does is, <laughs> I'm totally jealous. Everything she does is fantastic. She's got an essay in here towards the end called The Story Isn't Over. Mm. And I want to ask you, you know, at least the argument is that we're in the Anthropocene. We may be in the age of the sixth great extinction of decreasing fertility rates, both in animals and in humans, an economy, a, a worldwide economy that, you know, by any sane measure seems to be wildly unsustainable. Mm. You know, the rise of authoritarian governments in places where one would like to believe, you know, it ain't possible here. Right. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, one could be forgiven for giving up hope, mm. right? There are various essays in this collection that are dark, I think, but there are none that are despairing. And I want to ask you, what what is the value of wildness in what may be a very, very dark planetary time? 
Mm, that's a that's a great question. And by the way, you're uh, you'll want to ask Kurt the question of hope. Just just say the one word hope and see what he has to say about that because uh, mm, okay, it's yeah. a favorite dinner table conversation for him. I think that this book represents. I'll speak personally. My hope, in a way, because these are concrete examples of people who are intimately involved in the well-being of their places. To me, that's where the hope lies, the long-term hope. Mm. And finding ways in which human culture and participation can enhance and help other beings, the community of life, to flourish, those are the stories that we wanted to lift up and tell because we do exist within a kind of daily bombardment of bad news. And it's okay to, you know, we need to be aware, we need to be informed, we need to tune into those things as we are capable psychologically, if and when we can do something uh, about it. I, mm. I do think that if we're just sort of taking all this on, if we're just sort of absorbing the tonnage of news, and oftentimes the news is, is skewed, you know, toward the disastrous, right? Mm -hmm. Then it, it can create a debilitating paralysis or just a cynical despair. Mm -hmm. right. To me, it was important because I know there are other stories out there. I know from engaging with these people and from seeing good work on the landscape of and healing work that there are many counterexamples to that. But the important mm. point here is that wildness and thinking about it in these terms gives a trajectory to think through how we might be part of not sort of global level change because most of us aren't in a position to be able to do anything to influence that kind of scale of things. This is right. this is at the scale of us as human beings in our landscapes. So what opportunities are there for us to learn from the wisdom of the natural world, to listen as a dialogue partner with our places, and to, uh, in some way, put our shoulders and our minds and hearts behind something that can encourage the wildness of the places in which we live. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. And I, I brought up Julianne Let's Warn because one of the things she writes in her essay is, uh, alongside death, generosity seems to endure. Mm. And again, I, I think that the more that I'm hearing you speak and the more that I'm mulling this book over in my head, it's a, it's a very generous book, right? And that generosity seems to sort of suffuse the thing. Um, it seems to be one of the ethics really guiding most of the, all of the essays. Yeah, and I think, and maybe to oversimplify, you know, but, you know, you just kind of sparked the recurrent idea that I think fear and anger only, ta mm -hmm. only takes us so far. But deep love and caring, which is what relationships are built on, long-term relationships, right. and, right. and that includes our social relationship with the land, that includes our relationship with other uh, non-human agents. Those things are the things that if we have a chance of riding the ship, so to speak, then those are the kinds of things that long-term relationships are built on, a kind of yeah. deep care for our places. And, you know, not incidentally, that leads to, to their defense when they're threatened. Right, right. It's wildness. That's right. It's the wild.
Well, I think we should end there uh, to to give Kurt his his due. Um, sure. But Gavin, this has been this has been really a, a, you know a real treat for me, and I'm glad we finally got to talk. You too, and, Um The book is fantastic. You guys did a great job. Um, well, I appreciate you saying that, and I'm glad that you uh, found a lot to ruminate on. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It'll be it'll go right next on my bookshelf, right next to both the Great New Wilderness Debate and uh, Bill's Uncommon Ground. <laughs> great. <laughs> good deal. All right, Gavin. Have a good day. You too. Hi, I'm Brian Hamilton, Managing Editor of EdgeFX. And before we return to the show, I want to tell you a little about the upcoming episodes we're working on. Later this month, we'll be joined by historian Louis Warren, who will discuss his new book, God's Red Sun, The Ghost Dance Religion and the Making of Modern America. We'll also welcome the eminent environmental and Western historian Richard White, who will appear on the program to mark the release of The Republic for Which It Stands, the United States During Reconstruction and the Gilded Age, 1865-1896, the newest addition to the prestigious series, The Oxford History of the United States. In September, we're excited to have on anthropologist Anna Singh, author of The Mushroom at the End of the World. She'll be here to talk about a new collection of essays she has co-edited called Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet, Ghosts and Monsters of the Anthropocene. We'll also hear from another anthropologist, Marisol de la Cadena, who will chat with us about her 2015 book, Earth Beings, Ecologies of Practice Across Andean Worlds, as well as her experience learning cow for her current research on cattle raising in Colombia. Also in September, historians Nan Enstead and Bryant Simon will be in conversation about Bryant's upcoming book, The Hamlet Fire, a tragic story of cheap food, cheap government, and cheap lives. And lastly, in October, we'll hear from sociologist Jason Moore, who made a big splash with his last book, Capitalism in the Web of Life, Ecology and the Accumulation of Capital. Now he's back, partnering with scholar and activist Raj Patel for A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things, a guide to capitalism, nature, and the future of the planet. We're thrilled to bring all these exciting thinkers to you and hope you'll enjoy the conversations. Now, back to Dagan Miller and wildness. All right, so now I have the the great pleasure to get to sit with Kurt Miney. Kurt literally wrote the book on Aldo Leopold, wrote the first full-length biography. Uh, It's called Aldo Leopold, His Life and Work. And Kurt has written extensively on Aldo Leopold and conservation for years. He's currently a senior fellow at the Aldo Leopold Foundation. He's also senior fellow at the Center for Humans in Nature. He's a research associate at the International Crane Foundation. And it looks like you've got a new book coming out, right? The Driftless Reader. Mm-hmm. When's that going to be out? be out in the next month or so. Oh, wow. Yeah. Congrats. Thanks. Congrats. So, Kurt, Gavin and I just had this wide-ranging, great discussion on the book. He said that the first thing I have to ask you about (laughs) is I need to just drop the word hope (laughs) and let you go. So, Mm. hope. (laughs) Well, first of all, I don't think it's fair that he gets to come on (laughs) and prompt a question when I don't get a chance to rebut. So, But Gavin's my good pal and colleague and... He knows how to push my buttons, I guess. <laughs> Drop the word hope and get a response. Is that? Hmm. That's the. Well, I guess that has to do with 
an ongoing conversation, partly in my mind and partly in our greater community, and I'm sure every single person listening has had this same conversation again internally and externally on how we deal with a response to the situation we find ourselves in in terms of environmental change and social change and how those are connected. And there is a, this all comes out of some discussions back me almost a decade ago when there was a ramping up, I think, in terms of our consciousness of rapid environmental change mm-hmm. and, and how we do respond to this psychologically as individuals and collectively. And often the default is, oh, well, we have to stay hopeful. Mm. Yeah. And that's kind of our, our, our gut-level response to this. But it turns out, as I began to get into these conversations with many colleagues from all different mm-hmm. walks of life and all different fields, mm-hmm. That it's a really complicated notion. There yeah, are yeah. ethicists who have strong opinions on why yeah. hope is not a hopeful or helpful concept. Right, right. Um, and as, uh, again, anyone who's conscious, aware, and paying attention, they have to figure out how to navigate um, through through the changes we're experiencing that we're thinking about and mulling over. So, so Gavin and I have been in many conversations, uh, again, one-on-one and with others about understanding hope as a really complex human response to this reality, an unprecedented response, really. Right. So I think this is a good way to get into your essay. Your essay, um, it's the fourth essay in the book. It's called The Edge of Anomaly. It's in the first section called Wisdom of the Wild. It's a fantastic essay. I mean, it's just, it's, it's really well done. It's really thoughtful. It seems to me to be skirting the edge of hope. In in a lot of ways, I also have to say I expected, just given your you know your intellectual background, I expected the essay to be about Leopold, and it's not. Can you just give us a brief overview of what the essay what the essay is? It's called the Edge of Anomaly. Sure. Well, I appreciate that. First of all, thank you for the kind words. You know, I have written a lot on Leopold over the years, and there's a kind of a root to this yeah. essay with Leopold, who worked in our driftless area of the upper Midwest here back in the 30s and at a time of really important changes in conservation and in the state of the environmental reality in that region. But, you know, there's another part of my my own work over the years, which has not been just as a Leopold scholar, but really as a working conservationist and conservation biologist. It's been at least half of my work over, mm-hmm. over my career. And so this kind of combines those. It combines the history with a little bit of the Leopold the root to it with the ongoing changes in the landscape that I actually live in now. Mm-hmm. I literally live on the edge of anomaly, this mm-hmm. anomalous landscape of the upper Midwest that was not glaciated, at least right. recently, in most parts. So this is a landscape that stands out as something different from the rest of our very domesticated Midwest, and that it's got a greater degree, if you will, of wildness. So what does that mean for the driftless? You know, we've been to Devil's Lake, I've been to Devil's Lake, and a, you know, a couple of places mm-hmm. in the in the driftless region. What does wildness mean in a in a Wisconsin? Does it mean extra sharp cheddar cheese? Like, <laughs> like what is what does wildness mean in a Wisconsin context? Well, it means the same thing here as it means anywhere, I think, but it expresses itself obviously in a particular way. That is to say that we've been accustomed to this polarity of the wild and the human. Mm. And this whole book is an argument that says we can't do that. We can't live in that polarity. We don't live in that polarity. We actually live anywhere we are at any scale in places that are to some degree human and to some degree wild. 
and some degree rewilded. Right. Um, and so every his, every place has its history, its layers of human and natural history that combine in unique ways. The driftless region of the upper Midwest stands out from the rest of the Midwest because of its geology and topography and waterways. Um, it is different. And that difference, because it is not as flat, it's not covered with such rich soils to such depth as Iowa or mm. Illinois, or literally just down the road when you're on the edge of anomaly. Mm. Um, what that means is that it has had a different traje trajectory in terms of human land use and going back again, not just through European times, uh, post-colonial and post-settlement times, but different native history as well. So what it means for our state is that we can see side by side very different landscapes, even right. though they're contained within Wisconsin. And living on the edge of that, as I literally do, right? Um, you you go back and forth between more wild and less wild, right? Or more human and less human, right? And so that was kind of the prompt to this essay was to say, well, what can we learn from really, if you will, digging in <laughs> to that and seeing what uh, what insights we can gather, and you know. The the reason why I'm calling your piece an essay, and I'm using that term really sort of rigorously, I guess, or I, I don't just mean by essay that it's a short selection. I mean that it's it's very literary, right? And it seems to me that the theme of the piece, the the edge of anomaly, is that the driftless region was the was the region where the glaciers came down and they turned. They had to turn for whatever reason. Um, and you you make this argument about the people who are living in the driftless region also having to make a turn, right? This whole essay turns on turning, right? And having having to go uh, uh, the less obvious route. Is there some hope for you in that? I thought you were going to say I was making a circular argument. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. <laughs> no, I'm not just joking. Um, no, there is. I'm glad you picked up on that. In fact, I was looking at it again. I haven't really focused on this essay since I mm. since I wrote it, and there is, and it was quite consciously using this yeah. layered term. It's very la layered in the way you use it. And it's very literal, but it's also very metaphorical. Right. So when the characteristic site, if you're especially in the steeper regions of the Driftless area, are the, the contours on the land right. um, that were instituted primarily back starting in the 30s to to address the problem of terrible epic scale soil erosion and it really required a change in little literal change in the way especially farmers and other landowners were using their land it required turning right and it required a literal turn on the landscape but it also required a turn of mind and even a turn of the spirit to say that we can't just go on doing the way we things we have in the straight lines that we thought were the proper way. We have to adjust our life ways and our ways of earning livings and our ways of appreciating our landscape by looking to the land and listening to the land itself and what it requires of us and asks of us if we're going to provide a sustainable way of being here for ourselves and for all the other living things and processes that are inherent in the landscape. So this idea of ability to change and adapt and listening to, again, if you will, the voice of wildness. Wildness in the sense of the inherent quality and character of the land and the water, the plants and animals, this larger land community, of course, that Leopold spoke of, but that people who live in this region have 
come to know in their own way um, over their time there. And again, I include not just the uh, modern Americans or the settlers, but the native folks who have their own 12,000 year right. history of adjusting to this landscape with complications and complexities we don't even begin to understand. So part of that wildness and that turning is also having to do with facing our own ignorance. So, you know, this is, I, I love this. There are the seeds of so many questions in, in that response that you just gave. I think one of the questions I want to pick up on sort of re returns to the, ori the original question I asked you. I assumed that this was going to be about Leopold. And I assumed that, you know, given your intellectual background, um, you're trained as a wildlife ecologist? Partly in wildlife and ecology and conservation biology. Conservation biology. But also environmental history and the humanities. Yeah, so I, I, you know, I have to say I expected it to do a little bit more of putting scientists on a pedestal, right? And sometimes in um, sort of environmental writing, we get the notion that what we need to do is we need to listen to what, what, what ecologists tell us because they know how the land works. That is not what your piece, <laughs> it's not that your piece is saying that it's not an anti-science piece at all, right? But the main character is this uh, farmer, Joseph Haugen, mm -hmm. um, who's an old, old, old timer, right? Um, who's lived, his family's lived in the driftless, has farmed in the driftless region forever. And he ends up being sort of the, the, the hero of, or the protagonist anyway, of your story. Um, He's the one who's who's listening to who's hearing the voice of wildness. Mm -hmm. How did you how did you come to to focus on an ordinary person <laughs> rather than like a university trained scientist right. or a university trained humanist or something? Like that? Well, again, it's uh, overcoming that polarity. Maybe mm -hmm. another polarity between expertise and citizenry. Mm -hmm. Right. This is our Wisconsin tradition. This is what we like to claim for ourselves and struggled and strained to right, achieve the, the connection of knowledge to practice. And that isn't just a one way street. It's right. not just experts going out there and informing and providing information. No, it's listening. Right. And ask and f trying to figure out what questions are we required to pursue and ask. Right. And those are scientific questions in part, but they're also questions of human lives and human meaning and economy and ways of being and understanding the layered history. You know, behind this, although the essay is not scientific, you know, focusing on the science per se, what it is, is it's hopefully building on a lot of science that's been done right. by hundreds of researchers in all kinds of fields over decades. Right. That's right. how we understand how the land is and works and how it came to be. Yeah, But how we live on that land and how we begin to adjust our own understanding of it and our own behavior um, is the story of humans right. <laughs> and our neighbors. And in the case of the Driftlets, it's an agricultural landscape primarily with some wildness in right, it. Right, right, right. And uh, yeah, our, our wonderful, iconic in many ways farmer, Joseph Haugen, uh, and his late brother, hmm. Ernest, um, they were... Almost caricatures. I hate to say it that way, but <laughs> they were prototypes of the Norwegian bachelor farmers. Um, but uh, yeah, it was the last time I saw Joseph. Actually, was taking a group of students. I thought it was important for students to have an encounter mm -hmm. with someone who was really unique, someone who represented right. an older tradition of farming, and didn't just represent it in a in a nostalgic way. He was living right. It. He was living it right. Up until the last few weeks of his life, he was milking his jerseys. Um, and so, and but he also 
was emblematic of this generation of farmers back in the 30s who began to make that turn. Yeah, what is it that Ho- that Haugen did? Why, why is he... Well... I mean, he's a great character, but what, yeah. why does he anchor this essay? Well, be- partly because he's the last of that generation, mm. if not the last, one of the last, and he's the one I knew mm-hmm. uh, I had met, and we had mutual friends. He could tell that story with authority. Mm-hmm. It's his story. Mm-hmm. It's his family's story of living through this change that seems quite modest on its outside. Oh, we're going to put in contours and plow around the hills instead of up and down. Up and down, right. That's just one of the many changes, but that's the kind of the the great emblematic one. But as simple as that act is, it's also profoundly revolutionary. And revolutionary, again, in a literal sense and metaphorical sense, revolving and turning um, as we go around. Right, right. So I, on that note, I want to ask you, you know, I've been mentioning how just wonderful the literary quality of your essay is. And um, I have a deep interest in essays and the, the form of essays, and I could sort of pick away at this forever. I, but I want to ask you to read a piece um, to give so that, you know, the listeners don't have to take my mm-hmm. word that it's, <laughs> that it's extraordinary writing. I wonder if you could read this section right at the end. Sure. Right. So this is kind of referencing back to some earlier uh, narrative lines in the essay and trying to pull them all together at the end of the essay. And drawing the lesson. And uh, so. It is not a simple notion of the wild or the human that brings us around. We try to impose our will, yet we are shaped fundamentally by the wild, the spontaneous, the non-human, by forces that are greater than us, by realities that are older than us, by futures that draw us out. We are always finding ourselves on the edge of anomalies. And anomalies, with proper care and cultivation, exploration and contemplation, coordination and action, concede revolutions. So as I read that now, you know, it's again playing with the term of anomaly also. Um, uh, the land, the actual landscape as an anomalous one in our uh, flatter Midwest. But it's also the idea that we need that spontaneity, that mm. wildness to help us adapt, to help us to think that we may think, we may think that we have purely domesticated the earth mm-hmm. or the Midwestern corn and soybean empire right, right, or the farmstead that you live on in the Driftless or your urban neighborhood. Right. We may think that these are domesticated landscapes, but they all have wildness. So I want to ask you about, like, like I totally, I'm, I'm a country boy. I grew up in the middle of nowhere, um, <laughs> rural upstate New York. Um, in the middle of everywhere. In the middle of, well, okay, right. So, okay. I, you know, this, this idea of, you know, a driftless region or the Berkshires where I grew up or wherever uh, as a as sort of a country place that's different from the same old suburban tract house, whatever. I was, you know, sort of very conditioned to be like, oh, yes, the wildness is a sort of, you know, and, we, and we're in the country. We're, we're seeing this anomalousness in the country. I want you to make the case for me that downtown Madison is anomalous or that whatever housing development you, you know, that, that looks cookie cutter similar, that there's an anomalousness there too. Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe there's not. I mean, maybe that's part of the, the argument. Well, again, if we accept a strict polarity between 
wildness and humanness. Then we're going to fall into that and not see the things that show us that there is no such thing perhaps as a strict polarity or dichotomy. Mm. It's all a spectrum. Mm. And whether we are in the heart of downtown Chicago where Gavin was speaking from and has written about the wildness of the city, right. or we are in the most remote, least human-affected landscape on Earth. And of course, it is now a truth well accepted that there's no place on Earth that doesn't feel some human impact. I make an argument, actually, in another essay. Let's take that idea to its extreme. When did we become a humanized planet? Mm. We became a humanized planet when the first human being inhaled a breath of air, and then she exhaled it. Oh, wow. You take it very to, to the... <laughs> to the ultimate. This is beyond the plantation. Indeed. This, is the, this goes yeah. beyond the invention of agriculture. Right. This is, as soon as we achieved human consciousness, yeah. then we humanized that carbon dioxide yeah. that we exhaled. Interesting. You know, yeah. let's take it to that extreme. Okay, I accept that. And we can take that back now as many hundred thousand years as we want to take when we decide that we became human through our enhanced consciousness. Mm -hmm. Well, what that means for, for the present is that, again, no place is without human impact, mm. but no place is purely human. Mm -hmm. And our own guts inside of us are not purely human. Right. We are inhabited by a multitude, a vast, unexplored wildness right. of creatures that live within us right. and on our skin and it, we exhale them in our breath as well. So wildness and humanness are integrated, co-evolved, always changing, always adapting, always creating each other, and expressing itself in the landscapes we live in in complex and unique ways wherever we are. Mm. So in The Driftless, about the, which I write in this essay, we can see that on the landscape. We know when we go from 2,000-acre cornfields in Iowa mm -hmm. and cross right. over into <laughs> the right. landscape, and suddenly you can't farm that way anymore because you can't fit that within driftless valleys and right. ridges. But guess what? You drill into that beleaguered dirt of a monocultural right. cornfield in Iowa, you're going to find wildness. Maybe right. suppressed, maybe, maybe uh, minimized. But it's still there waiting to express itself with the conditions allow. And similarly in the city, um, when we see wildness returning to cities or being encouraged in cities or being at least considered, we realize that, of course, our cities are embedded in larger landscapes. But we can look at it the other way, too, mm. and understand that a person who considers themselves living in a country place mm. or even a remote wild place, they are connected right, right. to our urban centers as well. Right. Whether it's through the economy, through the ecological impacts, through the cultural connections, we are all part of the same landscape. And, again, as I've written in another essay, we can dwell on all these things that divide us between our urban and rural places and wild places, but we all dwell in landscapes that connect us ultimately. Yeah, so this uh, this is touches on two things that, that really came out in the discussion with Gavin. And I think what you're hitting on is that to me, this, this entire book is really characterized by a tremendous generosity. And when I hear you saying that it's not about the black and the white, the dueling divides, the dichotomies, it's about, it's about the connection, um, that there's a real generosity there. And there's sort of a politics to generosity, mm. I mm. think, um, in the way, even in the way that you're neither valorizing science nor valorizing, you know, the old crusty old timer farmer, but there's, there's a discussion 
mm-hmm. right? And there's a back and forth. The other thing that, that characterizes this book for me is that there is a tension, and I think a very productive tension um, overall, between, you know, there are people in the book who say that wild, you know, that the wild and wilderness, these are Western imperial concepts, you know, used to rob indigenous people of their land. You know, there are other people who say, well, no, wildness is this, you know, life force essentially, or this force mm-hmm. of generosity or something like that. I think one of the di- dichotomies, and, and I'm interested, you know, given your background and given this essay, uh, to hear what you have to say about this. One of the one of the tensions that I saw in the book is there's a little bit of a tension over the notion of control, right? There are a couple of essays that that are about sort of biohacking perennial grains, right? Or biomimicry as 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 a way to get industrial processes to perfectly mimic natural processes. And, um, and I don't mean to be critical of mm-hmm. either of them necessarily. Mm-hmm. Then there are also, I, I mentioned a couple of times with De- um, Gavin, uh, Devin G. Pena's essay, which is very much the sort of Marxist anarchist inspired, mm-hmm. you know, mutual aid, you know, no hierarchy. The, the Asakia essay is all about a lack of control, right? Mm-hmm. It's actually inefficiency that drives biodiversity and these sorts of things. How does control for you play through in these notions of wildness and this notion of place, inhabiting a place, mm-hmm. um, whether that place be, you know, suburban wherever or, you know, Baraboo? Well, that's a rich, rich question, and I'm not sure I can do justice to it. Um, but the first thing that comes to mind is the really the very notion, even roots of the word wild, of self-willedness. The self-willed capacity and character of quote wild things, and again, it's a matter of degrees. Mm. Um, that domesticated cow, or your own cat and dog, or the uh, the uh, the corn plant growing in the two thousand acre Iowa cornfield—they all have deep evolutionary roots. They mm. have deep roots in co-evolved communities of plants and animals and people. Mm-hmm. More recently. And so there's, there's a, there was, if not there is, a greater degree of self-willedness, even in the most domesticated mm. of our uh, modern organisms and ourselves, even, in places. And so uh, we tend to think of domestication as controlling as opposed to co-evolving, mm. because we do have, especially in recent decades, greater and greater tools that allow us to control more, well, give us the illusion of controlling mm. more and more, and of course, the key word there is illusion. Um, right. To what degree are we in control of anything? If you think and strive to control anything, then you are probably not going to agree with some of the things I've written in my own essay. If, on the other hand, you are constantly humbled by an understanding and an ignorance of wildness mm. and realizing we don't know where we are, mm. even if we know it really well. Uh, that we are constantly learning, adapting, changing, and co-evolving with everything around us, this great community of life mm. that we are inextricably a part of. And there's wildness inherent in it. Mm. And if we seek to control it, what's the lesson we always learn? It backfires on us. Right. It may not do it right away. It may not do it in an epic manner. But there are certainly feedbacks in in our relationships that unless we understand as Robin Kimmerer emphasizes, reciprocity, right. coming from Native American understanding, then if we ignore that reciprocity, and then we find ourselves in a pathological situation. Right. 
And that's sort of what this essay, and I guess the whole book, is trying to get at. Not to say we have all the answers at all. In fact, I really appreciate your comment about the generosity. That generosity, I think, reflects humility. Yeah. Oh, I think and so. And instead of thinking of the Anthropocene as the crowning achievement of our human uh, you know, tenure on this earth, instead of, uh, we, we need to understand that, yes, this, we may have crossed a threshold in terms of the human impact on the on the globe. We're always crossing thresholds. That mm-hmm. threshold of that first breath a was a threshold. Right. It's a, it's a, that point, I think, is underemphasized and mm-hmm. underrealized in discussions right. about the Anthropocene. And what goes along with that is it's a cautionary tale. Mm. And humility and generosity, to me, in any way, I think are the most appropriate human responses we can have, mm. given uncertainty. Mm. So, um, so um, controlling is the opposite of generosity. Right. It doesn't mean you're not in a relationship that involves some give and take and that you are helping to create a new thing, a new phenomenon, anytime we engage in our relationship with a more wild thing. But it, we get changed in that process, too. Right. And so the question is, in the process of domesticating or making more human, what are we doing to ourselves? What are we, right, right. And what are we losing and gaining in that exchange? So the more I talk to you and, and Gavin about this book, the more I'm I'm realizing just the the sort of genius that went into organizing the layout, right? The order of the essays. Because immediately following your yeah, essay yeah. is Joel Salatin's essay, right? right? Salatin is the the farmer made famous by Michael Pollan, right. Polyface Farm, Beyond Sustainable. Is that his? I think so. His, yeah, his yeah. tagline. Yep. Um, and he makes many of the points you just made, right? Like we need to cultivate, but we don't. We don't exactly. We have some be- ideas of best practices, but but uh, agriculture is not a science, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's an art. It's a craft. One learns it again and again. And and there's a nice pairing. There's a, a, a of your essay and and Joel's essay back back to back. You know, I I do want to ask a little bit about the politics of wildness mm-hmm. writ large. Mm-hmm. Maybe one way of getting at this question is what? Okay, let's say let's let's say this book sells a million copies, <laughs> right? What work do you think wildness could potentially do as an idea? Mm-hmm. You know, if ideas stand behind action, mm-hmm. um, let's take that as the as the the given. How will wildness change the world? How will wildness change the way we act? An understanding of wildness. Wow, that's a a uh, million book selling question. And the reason I'm asking you is because you land the way that you end. Yeah. One of the reasons I had you read that section right, right. is because the writing is beautiful. But you read, you, you end with this idea that anomalies concede revolution. Right. And I want to ask you what, what you're thinking about. Well, my sense of that at the moment it goes back to our earlier conversation about overcoming polarities and division. Mm. It's the easiest thing in the world to set up a polarity and take advantage of the impact of that on our mm. relationships socially, politically, economically. It's the easiest thing in the world. In mm. fact, there's whole industries built to uh, divide us. Right. Uh, my friend Courtney White, who is in the pages of this book, um, calls it the conflict industry. Right. You know? Power subsists on and perpetuates itself by keeping people divided, especially in our modern contemporary situation. So what's the most revolutionary thing you can do in response? Bring people together, overcome the boundaries, overcome the divisions, 
show the fallacies behind them and speak a truth that goes beyond a simplistic notion mm. of the wild or of the human. Mm. So wildness has the potential, in my view, to help us overcome that. Mm. And to help us overcome our sense of our identity as an urban person or a suburban person or as a rural person or as a devotee of wildness and wilderness, Mm. that we can see wildness across that spectrum and we can see it within ourselves. And it does have policy implications, if not political implications. It certainly asks us to say, how can we sustain whatever place we're in, whatever our identity and political identification is, how can we sustain in a way that's healthy? Mm. And I mean that, and this is a case where I will reference Leopold, mm. healthy in the sense of enhancing our capacity for self-renewal. That yeah. was Leopold's yes. phrase when he was wrestling with this theme back in the 1940s, the capacity for self-renewal in our ecological systems. But he was a wise man. He understood all our ecological systems are also socio-ecological right. systems. Right. So if we can recognize the role of wildness, and these get to understand the processes, and again, these feedback loops, which are so complex, even at the most local, intimate scale, we can begin to sustain the part that we find ourselves in and find ourselves embedded and nested within. Because you can't sustain anything if the whole thing ain't sustainable. You can't sustain your urban neighborhood or your suburban landscape or your farm or your watershed or your flyway or your remote wild protected place. You can't sustain any of that if the bigger whole is not itself sustainable. Oh, this is so, so that embeddedness and nestedness, you can see it rippling out from in your essay, the, the small farm in the driftless area to eventually to sort of planetaries. Right. But uh, we can also look, and you have to also look at it the other way too. That global mm, forces right. are impinging right. on this landscape that I, I, I inhabit and right. write about here. Right. Um, whether it's the economic forces that are driving agriculture more to, in this case, corn and soybeans, right. or the global forces of climate change, which one of the most widely accepted predictions is there going to be more intense rain, periodic right. rainfalls. And we saw this Maybe. literally in the last few days right. Right. here again. Right. We had another hundred year flood. Right. Right. Um, so the global forces are impinging on any place and out of that place can also come responses right. to that global reality. And it's always going to be that kind of a dynamic interplay. In this case, it, it is an anomalous landscape that yeah. shows it in a, in a really remarkable way. So one last question um, to wrap up. You know, I asked in the beginning that I thought your essay was going to be about Leopold. Um, Leopold, it seems like many of the essays, if there's a thinker standing behind this book, it seems like it's Leopold. Mm. I'd say at least half of the essays reference his notion of land health or the land ethic. One of the themes that uh, Gavin and I discussed that skips through, I would say, every essay is this idea of health. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, as the expert on Leopold, why do you think Leopold, for instance, uh, I I read a lot about Thoreau, Mm -hmm. right? In Wildness is the Preservation of the World. Thoreau doesn't show up in here Hmm. at all. Hmm. Maybe once or twice, but usually it's like, ah, Thoreau. Uh, Why why Leopold? Why, Hmm. Why are the essays revolving around Leopold? Well, you're right. He certainly does uh, suggest himself in a number of these essays, and I, I know. Yeah, more I, know, I, I noted that right. too when yeah. I was reading it. Um, well, I think there's a few things at work there. One, he's a, he is a bit more contemporary mm. than a Thoreau or a Muir. Mm. Uh, they're living people who knew him well. Mm-hmm. Uh, his legacy is 
embedded in our contemporary institutions and areas of scholarship and so forth, and literally on the landscape. Leopold was a, a working conservationist. Right. He was not uh, only a writer and thinker. He was a practitioner and a pragmatist. Right. There's the breadth of his legacy in conservation. We don't have another figure like Leopold historically who combined all the different dimensions of conservation, public lands and private lands, ethics and economics and education, on and on. I could go on and on. But the most important of those aspects of his breadth, my simplistic way of explaining it, is he's the only figure in our history who has a wilderness area named after him. Mm. And he was a lifelong proponent of protecting wild lands. Mm. And he also has a Center for Sustainable Agriculture mm. named after him. Mm-hmm. In battle and right now and beleaguered over in Iowa... But he had he was a key figure in the in the origins of what we now call sustainable agriculture right. or agroecology. Right. Um, so again, we could fill out around that, but that linkage between the wildness and the domesticated, between wilderness and agriculture, Leopold was the one who not only wrote and argued for and fought for advances in those areas, but he saw the connections between them. Mm. He saw that these are not separate parts of conservation. In fact, they are parts of the same broader conservation vision. So it's been a mission of mine over the years to try to deconstruct simplistic views of Leopold Mm. as just the green fire, Leopold protecting wild places and wild things. He did that. Absolutely. He did till the morning he died. Right. But he was also in a college of agriculture right here on our own campus in Madison, where he worked with Every single day of his career here, people who worked the land and understood the land from a more economic standpoint. Right. His struggle, and it's our greater struggle, is how to integrate those, how to find a healthy way of living with and within the land. Um, and now we think of that in global scale. It's not just the land, but it's the earth. Right. Um, and so um, he, he, he haunts these essays, I think, because we are coming to that point that Leopold ended up in. Mm. At the end of his life, in up. his essay, The Land, I think we're catching up in some ways. You know, I don't want to, I've also been dedicated to, uh, if you will, demystifying Leopold mm-hmm. and taking him down off the pedestal mm-hmm. that we are prone to put him on. Right, right. Uh, by saying he struggled with these things right. every day, just like we do. Right. And he made mistakes along the way. Right. And he came to his conclusions, but they were always tentative. And uh, he's well, always reworking the them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's, especially in his last few years, in his full maturity, you really see that generosity emerging uh, in his own writing. That's the voice you know in the same county all right, back. Right, That gentle and encouraging voice, but also right. one with a spine with a steel in it. Right. Yeah. You know? um, and so these essays, I think, in a sense, we are catching up. We're trying to understand we got to work beyond this polarity yeah. and all the polarities that we are subject to now. Um, in other ways, we are going obviously beyond Leopold because we know so much more right. about how the world works ecologically and so forth. But what he does, and finally, the last thing I'll say is he invites you into that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a point I always make that Leopold did not see, quote, his land ethic as his land ethic. He understood it as a collective product of a culture. And now we are enriching it so much more. We are drawing on so many more different traditions in ethics, religion, belief systems, mm-hmm. native, indigenous, global. 
we're all trying to find our way forward and trying to forge an ethic that can help us under these uncertain and ever-changing and more quickly changing circumstances. Mm. And we keep coming back to what Leopold had to offer, but he's building on Thoreau and Muir and Gifford Pinchot right. and his, you know, his own cultural antecedents. Right. He comes along and he's still as a reference point for us because we are still trying to find that right. way forward. That way forward. And he didn't right. have the answers. Right. He had some answers tentatively for his time. Right. But they point us. In a way that says, no, we got to make space and right. room for wildness in our hearts, in right. our heads, and on the landscape. And I think that's, you know, uh, that's one of the great strengths of this book is that it, um, there are some answers, there are a lot of questions, uh, but it sort of invites the reader to dwell with these questions about anomaly um, or, you know, about the legacy of dispossession or agriculture mm-hmm. or... Well, I'm obviously biased, but I think this book, I remember speaking with Gavin very early on about about it and challenging him a little bit to say, how about this as an idea? I don't know if he told you that story, but we had a conversation (laughs) in downtown Chicago about this in the train station one day. And he wanted to go forward with it. And I said, let me know how I can help. And I'm just so pleased because I think it serves that purpose exactly as you stated it of not certainly not dictating, but not, not just sharing, but it's also inviting the reader inviting. to say, how yeah. do you put these pieces together? How are you wrestling with these right. complexities? Right. And if it does that, you know, that's what any great book right. <laughs> we hope can do. And so I hope it's a great book, but I, um, we're, we're, I'm really appreciate what, what you're doing here with this because I, I, I've, I've been, excited about this and and i know that i hope others will find that same excitement in it. Uh, yeah i think they will it's it was a, a very it was both um provocative intellectually provocative and enjoyable you know I, I mentioned that a lot of the pieces were very very well written and and sort of literary right um in uh self-consciously literary i think your, your piece was one of them. well the book again is wildness um the relations of people and place edited by gavin van horn and john Hausdorfer. Kurt Miney has a piece in it, and there are 25 other essays. Kurt, it's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure, Dagan. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. That was Dr. Dagan Miller, writer, landscape historian, and author of the upcoming book, This Radical Land, A Natural History of American Descent. He was speaking with Drs. Gavin Van Horn and Kurt Miney, Director of Cultures of Conservation and Senior Fellow, respectively, at the Center for Humans and Nature. They were discussing the new essay collection, Wildness, Relations of People and Place, edited by Van Horn and John Hausdorfer, and available from University of Chicago Press. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Windrilla Chattopadhyay and me, Brian Hamilton. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile devices by subscribing to the EdgeFX podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review. That really helps potential listeners discover us. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeeffects.net. <laughs>